Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. We had to craft the story correctly and, and present it in a way where they didn't feel we were sort of revealing all their trade secrets or client base or anything else. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each and every week, you'll learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn what kind of challenges you'll face when working with factories used by luxury brands, how to build a 15,000-person email list before ever launching, and why and how to be transparent with your customers. Today, I'm joined by Scott Gabrielson from Oliver Cabell. Oliver Cabell is a design-inspired accessories brand built on the foundation of quality, craftsmanship, and clean design. It was started in 2016 in based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit more about the, the products. What are some of the, the most popular products that, that you sell? So we are a direct consumer brand, um, as you said, launched in 2016. And our, our premise really focused initially on uh, bags of lumber goods. That's really what we found the foundation of the brand. And it's really a deeper story into how that came about. But but really the the, the premise of it is that we um, as a team were spending some time in Asia and saw a lot of the traditional luxury brands that we really loved and admired. Um, they were producing a lot of the leather goods in um, parts of Asia that we found really subprime from a manufacturing standpoint. So um, the price points were still incredibly high, but we saw the quality, um, the craftsmanship, and the work conditions, and we thought that there had to be a better way um, to, to really bring this category to life that um, really brought back those core elements that a lot of these heritage brands were, were found on. Got it. So talk to us about the, the, the background of, of the, the, I guess, the, the business. So you mentioned that you went to Asia, you saw that the quality was not worth essentially the prices that people were paying for a lot of these luxury brands. Was there some other, how, how did you decide to focus specifically on, on bags and leather goods? Like, did you have a background in or wanting to start a business at that point? No, it's it's actually quite interesting. So I was going to business school um, in England at the University of Oxford, and this was in 2014 and 15. So a lot of um, of the traditional categories in fashion were being disrupted with the direct consumer movement. So obviously, the beginners like Warby Parker and Our Lane and, and Harry's and the rest. Um, and we hadn't seen much in terms of the leather goods space, which is always a category. Um, that I was sort of innately interested in. Uh, I did study art in undergrad, so had um, some background in uh, design, if you will, but actually went uh, a more traditional finance route. But um, during that time, you know, I was when I was in business school, it seemed and we were really confirmed that the highest markups associated in the fashion space were based around accessories and leather goods. Um, for a variety of reasons, but, you know, I think the foundation of it being that female purses and, and purses in general, um, have always been something that was really coveted by, you know, the female gender, if you will, um, which innately just brought markups upon markups upon markups. And, um, really, you know, that infiltrated other categories, you know, smaller wallets and, uh, and other smaller leather goods. But the fact that a lot of these products are fairly timeless, can be used for a long time, um, and are, are, are meant to last for a long time, uh, I think it allowed a lot of these brands to justify charging prices that um, were pretty high. And, and I think, you know, at the beginning, um, there was a reason for it. But as these companies started to go public and uh, become larger parts of different holding companies, um, these margins kept increasing. And part of that's due to the fact that a lot of these conglomerates are large public companies. So they have shareholder pressures and the like. But um, the problem was, as we saw, was that price, you know, when you buy products at high price, you innately think that they should be of high quality. Um, and the reality of what we saw is what they were not. And, um, you know, that's something that we wanted to change. And that's really where the foundation of the brand came from. Yeah, I mean, now that you explain it, it makes perfect sense that there the the quality was not at the standard that would uh, justify the high prices that people are paying. Uh, but once you once you saw that gap, that there was this kind of injustice essentially that was happening with the consumer, 
what were the steps that you you had to take? Like, how did you know that you knew had what it took to essentially go up against these, you know, massive uh, luxury brands? Yeah, well, I guess the the reality is we didn't know. <laughs> it was part of a, a you know the learning process that goes about just starting anything in general, I suppose. Um, but for us, you know, we felt um, as you know recent college grads or graduate students that. A lot of these brands we couldn't really relate to. Um, a lot of their advertising campaigns or the you know sort of logo written product that they're putting out there um, was not as interesting to us as um, a lot of the brands that were coming out at this time. Again, referencing the Warby Parkers of the world um, that had a much deeper and richer story to what they were doing and why they were doing it, and, and we felt that this category um, sort of lacked that story and, and that sort of, uh, you know, interest in, in creating something that's new and, and can be relatable to, to, you know, a variety of people, but those that are really starting to spend a lot more time shopping online. So, you know, with that, it just turned into a learning process of, um, just first really getting an understanding of what the market looks like and, and who's the players in it and, um, what sort of dynamics that entails. And then going off and, and really figuring out, okay, if, if, if we're focusing now on product, how are we going to create the best product that we can? Um, how can we tell the story so that everyone knows that the quality is what, what, you know, what we say it is? Um, and that really was part of how we built the brand and a lot of the brand story being around transparency and us revealing who our factories are all the way down to what our costs are. Um, because we felt that if we were just going to tell you that, you know, we're producing a product that is of really high quality. Um, there's no reason for you to believe that, you know, there's so much opaqueness to the industry in general that um, it's really hard to believe a lot of what a lot of brands are saying nowadays. So we felt we had to really open our doors and show people what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, and then that, you know, not only kept us accountable, but allowed us to tell a story around our products and everything else. So, um, you know, that was really the foundation of what the brand was. And then we, uh, you know, really dovetailed it into, you know, exploring what that looked like and, and building the brand and, and really what it exists like today. Mm, and did you, how much of the, the brand, the messaging and the, I guess the story of the company, how much was that already built out before you started designing or manufacturing the, the products? A lot of it was built out, but, you know, when we were, there was a few core elements when we were building the brand that we knew we wanted to have. Um, part of it was that we wanted to be gender neutral. We felt leather goods often are gender neutral, if you will. Um, and we wanted to be able to cater to both genders. So we obviously have products that um, relate to one gender versus another, but we all we always wanted to be a brand that um, really no matter who you are or where you lived or the like, um, you could shop with us and, and you know, buy into what we were doing and in our story and, and, and relate to it. So, you know, with that, um, we kept a few elements on the design side, very core to what we wanted to be. And that really is focused around having very clean and timeless products. Um, you know, we spend so much energy on creating the, the really the highest quality products that we can, that, um, we wanted to make sure that people could use them for a very long time. If it was very, if it was something that was, you know, a bit more trend centric, um, we felt that kind of juxtaposed what we were trying to do as the brand in general. Um, and with that, you know, all the elements into our, our web design to photography and the rest um, revolved around those sort of core elements of, of clean design and timelessness and, and quality um, and just really trying to give people as much, you know, visual cues to, to what we are as a brand, um, mostly because we're, we're online only. You know, we can't, consumers can't go in and, and touch and feel our products in person. So we had to, to really translate who we are as a brand um, solely through our website and, and our social accounts and the rest. If you do spend this time upfront to to really build out the brand, build out the messaging, how do you, how do you test if this kind of messaging will resonate with your your target customers if you don't have any products yet you know during that time where you were developing the brand yeah it's a, it's a good question and for us you know we we took the approach that's a bit different than sort of a lot of technology companies with a, a minimally viable product we felt that if we're going to launch a brand um, we need to have a lot of our core elements in, in terms of who we are and what we stand for flushed out beforehand 
um, and really focus on on building a brand that's going to last a really long time. We do not want to spend, you know, just be masters of, of paid advertising or the like and, and have that be um, the way we built the brand. We wanted to have the foundation very core from the beginning and something that, you know, we know that we need to grow on and, uh, and continue evolving with. But, um, you know, the elements that we chose to center the brand around are not you know, incredibly foreign to the fashion space, if you will. Um, you know, we saw a lot of brands that are starting to really reduce the amount of, of you know, logo presence or whatever, or, or really, you know, making um, their products a little bit more about the lifestyle than about the fashion side of it. Um, so that gave us confidence that there was a, a space um, of con- and a section of consumers that would be really interested in what we are doing and what we're building. But I think for us as well, you know, we wanted to build something that, that we were interested in and liked and uh, were passionate about. And um, we sort of, sort of fall into that target demographic, if you will. So we felt that if we were building something that we would want, um, hopefully other people would like it too. But at the end of the day, we would always be really proud of something that we had and that we, you know, felt really strongly about then really trying to build a brand um, that just resonated with the most amount of people as possible. Mm-hmm. So certainly that the benefits of the approach you took will give you that cohesiveness and that strong foundation to build a business upon. And I can certainly see how this can set you up for long-term success much better than kind of, you know, test as you launch uh, the MVP approach, as, as you mentioned. But what kind of obstacles or what kind of challenges do you think you, you ran into by taking this approach of this? designing the brand first, essentially, almost not necessarily in isolation, because like you're saying, you are their target customer, but because you didn't have anything that's on the market yet, but you you were already spending time to design the brand. What kind of obstacles or challenges do you think you you ran into with that approach? Yeah, no, it's a a really good question. And it's one that is, you know, very prevalent when you're spending a lot of energy around the brand. So for us, you know, we spent a lot of energy around um, our photography, uh, building up the site, even though it was fairly lean, we still wanted to have it done correctly. So when we did that, you know, we didn't have, um, we didn't go out and raise around. We we did, we just closed around, but we didn't when we went live. And for us, it's just purely financial. Um, like I, I think a lot of people that are building brands is uh, there's a constraint there, and there's some things that you know you can get away with. But for us, we felt that if we want to be taken seriously. And we felt that people from press to consumers only want to buy into things that they think and feel are going to you know, be successful long term. Um, we felt that we had to sort of get that structure built and that foundation established um, versus us just going out and, and really trying to pull something together um, that we you know, sort of hacked together initially all ourselves, if you will. So we brought on, we spent a lot of time thinking about what partners we wanted to be involved, we wanted to have involved with the brand long term, um, no matter really where they were located or what their price points were. Uh, we spend energy thinking about who these partners are, why we want them on board, and how they can help us really grow from this initial you know, infant company to hopefully a company that um, is around for a very long time. And, and we wanted to make sure that we had those partners on board at the beginning. Can you say more about these partners? Like, What kind of partners are, are, you, are you talking about? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. So from everything from really like a web development standpoint to, again, photography to um, you know, product sourcing and, and manufacturing and, and the factories and the rest. You know, when you're a really small brand, um, it can be very challenging getting yourself in front of uh, just to say manufacturers or factories um, that are the quality and the scale that you want to be in front of. So, um, you know, we do all of our production in Italy and Italy, uh, especially factories in Italy, especially in this category that we're in, are probably the most um, garden factories in the world, if you will, you know, those Italian leather makers of, of bags and, and smaller leather goods, um, are highly coveted and, you know, they have no web presence. You cannot Google and find them. They have no, no public, um, information to reach out. It's very much a network effect into, into how you can get to them. Um, and we spent a lot of energy making sure that we got to them before we even went live and they bought into what we were doing in our story. Um, versus us just finding, you know, someone that was local or, or the like 
um, to produce our products. We wanted to make sure that we were in the factories and working with the suppliers that um, the best brands in the world used and, and the ones that we felt would give us legitimacy and, and give us the product that we wanted um, and ones that we could scale with. And I think that was um, a really important step for us is to flush out who those partners were, what that supply chain looked like before um, we decided to just bring something to market and test and see how it reacted. Can you say more about how you, you broke into these factors? How were you able to to identify which kind of which kind of partners you, you could work with, and how do you, how were you able to get their their attention and eventually the 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 essentially buy in to to work with you? Yeah, that was a really challenging thing. So luckily, you know, I was living in Oxford at the time, which is about an hour outside of London. And um, a lot of the best you know, brands in the world have design teams or are headquartered in London. So luckily, I had the chance to meet with a lot of designers that were working or had to work for, you know, some of the best brands in the world, um, best luxury brands in the world or just best quality brands in the world. And with that was a really slow process of really just starting to network with them and, and really understand, you know, have them understand what we're trying to do. Um, and then slowly and, and you know confidently have them introduce us to the right people. And what did you find that they they cared about most when you when you met with them? What did they care? What what about you? What about your company attracted them to you the most? So I think there's there's two different parts to it. Um, on the designer side of it, what we learned quickly was that most of these designers, even if they were working for you know the Louis Vuittons of the world, they were still not making a lot of money. They were not getting incredibly well for the work that they're doing. So with that, um, they, they're always looking for you know either freelance opportunities or opportunities to um, be involved with other brands and the rest. So we had uh, a nice reception on, on that side of things. I think they also saw um, a lot of you know the traditional sort of seasonal collections in the fashion space and, and more traditional brands um, suffering to what a lot of the online market was doing. Uh, with a lot of people moving and purchasing online. So they saw what we were doing as being something that was sort of on trend, if you will, um, and a, a direction that they felt that this industry was going to. When we went to the factories and we were explaining our story, it was a little less, um, you know, they had a little more struggle with understanding even what we were doing. We were talking about, you know, we were not going to work with wholesalers. We weren't going to try to sell to the Barneys and Nordstrom's of the world. Um, that we were going to pass along all these savings to the customer and sell products, you know, that they were used to manufacturing um, that would usually go for, you know, 1200 to $1,500 US dollars retail, uh, bring those down to a two, three, four hundred $400 price point. Um, and they didn't really, you know, it took a little bit more convincing to, for them to understand why that makes sense and why we're giving up all that margin and the rest. But um, I think the reality is, as well with European manufacturing, is that, um, you know, these guys have all been suffering because of so many brands seeing how important margin is and going public as other companies or the rest, uh, moving to these developing countries. Um, so a lot of their, you know, customers that they had had for a long time were, were changing to cheaper places to manufacture. So um, this was sort of the one category and one space where they could actually keep their legitimacy as a a true sort of leather goods maker that's focusing on high quality and, and the rest um, while still adapting to, you know, changing consumer economics and, and consumers not wanting to spend $2,000, $3,000 on products. So we were sort of giving them that opportunity to grow with a brand that was still interested in what they wanted to do and was, you know, that's a core part of who we are is just producing high quality products, um, but also someone that could grow with them over time. So they, they they weren't just looking at how much you could pay them, how much you could order from them. They really wanted to see, are are they going to be working with a business that can be successful, that, that is operating in a in a growing market? Yeah, that's one thing that we learned. We had heard quickly um, and learned as well is that, you know, onboarding a new brand, I, I, I'm probably with any industry that you're in, uh, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of sampling. There's a lot of prototyping. There's a lot that goes behind it. Um, and they don't want to produce one run for any brand and spend all that investment. They want to be able to you know, put that investment into the brand um, and continue working with them and build that relationship and understand how people work together and the rest. And 
you know, if they don't feel that you're going to be able to bring that to the table, then they're just really not going to want to work with you just because there's so many brands out there that come up and, you know, open their doors one day and close their doors the next that it's, it's, you know, they have a, a, an immediate sort of standoffish to that approach just because of how much time and energy goes into, you know, working with these companies and, you know, they're obviously running a business too and need to, you know, keep their lights on. So they want to work with people that can, you know, grow with them and increase volume with them and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, to some degree, the factories that, that you ultimately ended up working with, they are a part of the at least key ingredients in the secret sauce of these luxury brands. So when you started to talk to these factories, did you ever run into any pushback or run into any obstacles because you were tapping into these factories that were being used by you know massive luxury brands? We did a lot, actually, um, depending on the factory, but a lot of them, they did not want any transparency into who they are, what their story was, or the rest. So we, we, you know, a big part of what we do is, is tell that story. And if they weren't willing uh, to be open with us and, and sharing who they are and, and, and letting us always tell their story a bit, um, then we really, you know, didn't really want to partner. We didn't think it was the right partnership for the brand that we wanted to build. But um, the reality is, is that they have, you know, a lot of um, really expensive, uh, high luxury brands that they work with. And, um, you know, those brands never want to have someone that's producing at the same or higher quality and at a price much lower than they are um, that are telling a story that people are relating to. You know, that goes very much against sort of where they're at now, um, focusing so much of their time and energy on the heritage of who they are and why that sort of legitimizes the price that they can charge. Um, so with that, you know, we had to find the right partners that, that believed in what we were doing. And, you know, we had to craft the story correctly and, and present it in a way where they didn't feel we were sort of re- revealing all their trade secrets or client base or anything else. But um, it was sort of this evolutionary approach in, in terms of you know, getting past that hurdle. Mm. Now, once you found these factories, um, there's, there's of course, a lot more to it than just looking in the factory. You mentioned that there was an entire supply chain that you had to learn more about. Talk to us about this. What, what other parts of the supply chain did you have to spend your time focused in and, and learning more about? So for us, you know, a big um, a big part of what we do is, is around leather and, and other materials. So, you know, just innately, the fashion industry is, is a high polluting industry. Um, creating leather as well is, is one that involves, uh, can involve a lot of toxic chemicals and the rest. So we had to go through, you know, we went through a pretty rigorous process of understanding, you know, who are the best and most environmentally friendly um, tanneries in the world, but also the ones that are producing at a really, really high quality, which is, you know, that's always the struggle um, is balancing those things. And, and on the third side of it, making sure that it's at a price point and quantity point that, you know, works with us as well. So we had to spend a lot of energy um, on vetting, you know, who those suppliers were and, and what that looked like. And then, you know, it just evolves into, um, you know, understanding how much colors that they can offer and, and, and different seasonal collections and the rest. So there's just, there's so many moving parts that, um, you know, we had to vet through to make sure that we found the right partner. But we ended up with a, a tannery that's, you know, one of the most coveted Italian tanneries around. Um, they also have a very unique supply chain and they actually hold skins, um, you know, leather skins on hand that are colored um, and already tanned, which is very rare nowadays in Europe. So, you know, traditionally you would have to uh, maybe purchase a thousand square meters of a certain color, which would be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of products or units, if you will. Um, and with that, we were able to sort of get that down to, you know, we can produce a few products in a few colors if we really need to. So it's really, you know, it was for us, it was understanding who those correct partners were and um, who worked for what we were trying to do and where we're trying to go going forward. You know, we're moving, um, we're actually launching footwear, um, in you know this fall, and a big part of that is making sure that we have the ability and adaptability to to work with partners that can both service both of our categories and um, all the different sizing and SKUs and the rest that go into you know having a, a category that um, has a lot of those issues that that can arise with it. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you 
identify whether a, a factory or a, a tannery is of high quality and then how do you ensure that they uphold those standards in in, in your manufacturing or in the raw materials that, that you purchase? Yeah, uh, great question. So for us on the sort of vetting side of it all, um, we work with a, a few folks in Europe. We actually have a, a team of folks that are full-time team in Europe that helps us go to that vetting stage. So they, you know, they have backgrounds in the space and they, you know, there's reputations that go around on who people want to work with, who people do not. Um, the fact that we are doing everything in Europe um, s- mitigates slightly a lot of the issues that happen when you're seeing a lot of the, you know, product development in, in, in some more developing countries, if you will, um, less issues around, you know, labor issues or, or, um, in really, really poor quality conditions. But the reality is that you need to have someone on the ground and, and someone that's checking these things and, and um, you know, is approving and, and making sure that requirements are being held to the standards that they set with us. Um, you know, I think at the beginning, one of the things that we thought was a, a probably a pretty good way to vet these partners was to really get a try to get an understanding of what their client base already looked like and what brands they were working with. Um, you know, we, then we would really understand who those partners were, what their sort of stories were and, and their values were as well. And that, that tend to be a pretty good way to vet these things, but there's no way by any means saying that, you know, there are a lot of incredibly expensive or, or, or you know, luxury, if you will, brands out there that produce in, in, in spacers or with materials or with factories that are just not of, of quality or, or, or conditions that you would want to, to really have those products of. So, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of trust that goes into it, but making sure that you spend the time to do the research. And this just goes back to us at the beginning, you know, wanting to build this foundation on the supply chain and the brand side of it before we just try to really create a product and, and put it out to the market and see how people reacted to it. Um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, these elements that we really valued around quality and transparency and, and you know, value and the rest um, were elements that were real and true and, and part of who we were as a brand. Um, and when we were going to open our doors to, you know, everyone from a, a transparency side and revealing side of it all, it had to be, you know, we sort of told everyone that it is what it is. And, and we had to show them as well. So with that, it kept us in check and made sure that we really vet these partners correctly before we uh, we just started working with them. Got it. So you hire like a consulting company on the ground typically to help vet and ensure standards are upheld? Um, I, it wasn't really a consulting company per se. Uh, we brought on some uh, more so consultants and freelancers that would help us with the initial sort of introductions and vetting process. But we went through a lot of it ourselves and that just goes back to the sort of financial constraints that um, a lot of startups have is that, you know, you can't bring in someone Mm -hmm. and pay an exorbitant amount of money and expect, um, you know, them to do all the work for you. So it was really a balancing act between it all, but uh, we had to learn it as well and not just rely on them to actually do all the vetting for us. Right. So does that mean that you guys are going to these factories and, going onto the floor, how, how involved can you get when you want to make sure that the quality is to your standards? Yeah, our team is in the factory every single day. So they're, you know, they live within five kilometers of, um, of where the factory actually is. So they're always, you know, working with whatever the tannery might be or the actual production factory or the rest um, and checking everything every, every single day. So um, that was an incredibly important thing for us was to have someone else close and could be there um, actually checking things that were part of our team or not just you know someone that we hire temporarily to do so so with that um you know we're always getting updates and we just feel so much better about how things are going and flowing in the rest. Mm-hmm. and based on your experience any red flags that you now look out for when it comes to a manufacturer or a, a raw material vendor that, that you now know to look for that signals that it's a company that you don't want to partner with? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's just like these gut instincts that most people would have. You know, if you go into a factory and it's really dirty and you see things that are just, you know, in shambles, if you will, it, it, it's probably a signal in terms of how they run um, their business. And 
um, you know, when you're really trying to be optimized and work with partners that you want to lead with for a really long time, um, it's probably best to avoid those sort of uh, potential issues if, if you can see them right away. But um, another thing for us is just having people that, you know, we, we speak obviously with a lot of um, owners of different factories or, or suppliers or the rest. And, you know, really making sure that we can trust who they are and what they say and the rest. You know, we've had um, suppliers or factory owners that have sort of, uh, you know, finagled, maybe not lied, but weren't incredibly truthful in terms of what they would say. And, you know, we would do our due diligence and, and recognize that. And it wasn't, you know, even if they had maybe used very convenient factory or very, um, the pricing was really great. If we couldn't build that trust with them from the beginning, we didn't think it was someone we wanted to build a, a really a longer term relationship with. So, um, you know, there were sort of innate things that I think anyone would sort of pick up, but really listen to your gut and not just say, well, it'd be so much easier or more convenient to go with this partner, but really think about if this is someone you want to partner with for really. Mm-hmm. So obviously you're spending a ton of time, ton of money, time of resources on behind the scenes on creating a high quality product. Now, how do you make sure that your your customers see all of this and see the benefits of all the work that you're putting in behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the customer doesn't always see it. It's it can be challenging, right? But we try to, um, you know, that just goes back to our transparency and our storytelling who we are and who we're working with. Um, we spend a lot of energy around those elements of it, uh, through our site or through email or however it may be. Um, and that's really the best way for us to communicate. There's there's only so far you can go, but making sure that the imagery or the rest for the echoes all those values that, that we're sort of either talking about or, or showing the rest. Mm, so you mentioned transparency a couple of times. Can you give some examples uh, of things that you you as a company have be, have uh, been transparent about that maybe you don't see other companies doing? Yeah, I, would, uh, I think the the one that really stands out the most is around our pricing. So we reveal, you know, if you go onto our site and look at a product, um, you can see the price breakdown, everything from transportation, labor, materials. Uh, duties and the rest uh, in terms of what we're paying and then we show obviously what our retail pricing is so we're transparent around even what our margins are um, which is you know there's a couple brands in the world that do that and and something that we felt um, really helped tell the story on on what our products were and and what they stood for and the quality around it and also um, you know help justify to, to people and let them understand why our pricing is the way it is you know we are not the cheapest um, brand out there by any means, but um, you know we try to really create as much value and, and trans you know translate as much of that value to the consumer as possible. So we keep our mar- you know our margins as low as we can while still being being a uh, you know a profitable and growing for profit company. Um, but there's also you know a lot of costs that just go into to a product that you'll never be able to communicate completely. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, looking at a price breakdown for one of the backpacks, and there's literally 10 or 11 line items with the actual cost of what goes into a product like this. Obviously, this transparency, I think, will will win a lot of customers' trust in you. Has it hurt you in any way, hurt you as a company? What, what, what has, given this kind of transparency, how has it uh, such affected you as a business, maybe not, po- not, not in such a positive way? No, we, we actually haven't had we haven't had really any pushback to it. I think people, you know, if, if they think that we're, um, you know, taking too much margin, we haven't had really anyone come back with that. But I, I think people really understand before they would do that, that we're, you know, we're being very open with these things, which is keeping us very honest with what we're doing. Um, and the fact that we are revealing everything that we can, you know, we've had situations where, um, you know, we were importing a product and the duties were incredibly high on it. And we just, you know, we just thought that was the way it was. And we actually had customers reach out and say, hey, are you using, you know, the right codes with your duty imports? And mm-hmm. look high. We would have never have known that without having that sort of transparency. Wow, that, that's amazing that your customers are helping you out that way. Um, now, let's talk about launch. When you first launched the, the store, launched the business, 
what products did you have for sale? Like how, how many of these uh, these different products that you have on the site now were available on the first day? Yeah, so we just had a couple products um, when we went live. And the way that we actually structured our, our launch was that we did a built-in sort of like a referral program, if you will. So uh, we had a landing page that, that showed, you know, sort of our transparency and, and what we were trying to do. Um, and then what we were really trying to, to spend a lot of energy on was, was capturing emails so we could tell that story when we went live um, and had an audience to launch. So we built in this referral program that essentially incentivized people to, to spread the word on what we were doing, um, either by giving them, you know, sneak peeks of product or early access or discounted product or the rest. Um, and allowed us to build an email list of roughly 15,000 before you even went live, which was a big part of sort of our initial launch. Um, and then we spent a lot of energy working with editors and, and talking to editors and, and press to really make sure that when we went live, we had um, an audience to go live to. You know, we felt that we only had one chance to launch the brand and we spent a lot of energy on making that, that launch, you know, something that was going to feel successful. I love that, that you already had uh, an audience uh, before even having any products for sale. So this referral program, how did you kickstart it off? You know, because referrals, of course, are, are, are great, but you need that initial referrer that, that starts spreading the message. So how were you able to drive the attention and traffic early on to start the, the viral process of the referral program? Yeah, good question. And this just went into us just just doing the groundwork, you know, we emailed almost probably five or 600 people um, just telling them what we were doing and, and our story and what we were building and sort of would love to have them help us out, um, you know, spreading the word and the rest and then, uh, you know, have the team reaching out to every one of their family members and friends and, and posting on social and everything else. So we knew that, no, we didn't go out and we didn't raise a ton of money we weren't, you know, prior founders of some really successful company. You know, we had to really go out there and tell our story. People were not going to just come to it and uh, uh, and listen. So we spent a lot of energy um, on really networking with everyone that we knew and telling them what we were doing. And that's what really jump started the entire thing. Mm, so were these customers or potential customers? Were they publisher? Like were they big publications? Like what kind of? What, what would you say the the focus? What 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 area would you say people should focus on if they want to take the same approach that that you that worked for you? So if they're going to take uh, on the referral side of it, you know, we thought that only people that knew us and, and sort of our values and what we were trying to build were the ones that would actually help spread the word on what we were doing. So we really focus on those people that, that knew who we were personally um, and reaching out to them. We spoke with everyone to prior bosses and, and you know, begged them to email out to their department what we were doing to, um, you know, childhood friends that we hadn't spoke with in 10 years. Um, and just really, you know, those are the people that will open the email, they will respond, and they may, you know, go online and submit their email and, and refer some friends that, you know, they know that might think that they're interested, um, that might be interested, you know, going out to large publications or editors, you know, they're getting so much stuff coming through their inbox. And when you're just a really small brand with really, you know, nothing to really say or show yet, um, it's going to be really challenging for them to really want to write something on you. So we felt that, you know, if we could go this route, um, and we could have it be very successful. You know, we were able to tell press that we launched with 15,000 emails before we even had a product. Um, and those are the sort of stories they found really interesting and, uh, and wanted to write about, you know, in general. So we were able to sort of tackle that side of it by, by really using sort of our groundwork and, and the, the grueling amount of energy that went behind that to, to kind of funnel it. Mm. Now, what drives the the sales today? Is it the the email is still, or what what what, te- what works for you guys today? Yeah, so it's a it's really a combination of a lot of things. Um, one, the most important one for us is word of mouth, and that's always you know what we've seen to be um, not only the best from sort of a, a customer acquisition side of it, but one that you know brings in the best customers for us. We still. Um, you know, we have a fairly large social following, and we have a, an email list that's um, now much more robust than sort of what we launched with. And we use really a combination of all those channels in, con- in conjunction with press to, to help continue our story. But now that we've had, you know, we've been live for 
um, a little over a year, we've luckily have built sort of this audience just by working with a lot of partnerships or um, doing different campaigns or whatever it might be to help get the word out for us. But um, there's not really one thing I I wish there was, and it'd be easier for everyone if there was that one thing that really Mm -hmm. just energy on, but it really, really truly is a combination of all those elements uh, that sort of lead to success. Well, what are some ways that that you are encouraging word of mouth from your customers? Yeah, I mean, we we don't do. We have done a bit of um, sort of like a, a, a give twenty get twenty promotion. So um, you you give access. You know, some, if someone refers someone, they'll get a twenty dollar credit. Um, if the other person you know purchases, and that person would also get a twenty dollar credit. Um, which is a nice way to incentivize things. But I think at the end of the day, if you don't have a product that's really interesting, um, people don't want to put their sort of personal brand and personal reputation on the line. They're not going to refer no matter how how much you incentivize them or tell them to. So we try to not you know, be incredibly pushy on it, but just make sure that we're there for them. And, um, you know, after they purchase from from us, we follow up with them and make sure that, you know, everything's going smoothly and they're happy and they, they love whatever they bought from us. Um, and that seems to be really the best way to sort of incentivize those referrers, if you will, so just to take that time and energy and, and really put it into your current customer base in hopes of, you know, they'll appreciate it and they'll help you grow at the end of the day as well. Mm. And out of the social channels that, that you have set up, which one has been the most effective at driving traffic and sales? Um, so for us on the branding side, Instagram is still incredibly important since it's such, such a visual platform. Um, from a sort of marketing or paid advertising standpoint, you know, Facebook is, is probably the best for us um, in terms of really driving clicks and people to the website. But um, you know, we think Instagram is probably the most important in terms of actually building that brand and having people relate to that brand. But um, yeah, it's kind of a combination of this. Yeah, interesting thing. Um, I'm sure this is on purpose with your Instagram is that most of the photos are not of your product, right? There's maybe out of 10 photos, there's one of a backpack in this case that I'm looking at. And then it's not for another 10 or so photos before another uh, photo of the weekender bag that I see. What was the thinking behind this approach? So we wanted to use Instagram as a few things. One, we thought that if we just kept showing our products, um, it's, it, it really sort of loses its, uh, you know, it's, it becomes a little less interesting, if you will. So we were going to just show, you know, tons of pictures of various bags and different, you know, different settings or situations or different angles or colorways. Um, it might not be actually that interesting to the customer. They actually, you know, they want to understand who we are as a brand. Um, so we try to show everything visually on what that means if that's, you know, actually specific product or if that means showing certain destinations or um, architecture or whatever it might be um, to really help them understand you know who we are what our our sort of core values are from either design side or the rest um, but also things that are just you know interesting for them to see and not just repetitive um, seeing the same thing over and over again Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Facebook, when it, with the, the paid ads, are you using Facebook for retargeting or are you using it also to bringing first-time visitors through through Facebook as well? No, we use it mostly just for retargeting. We don't do a lot of customer acquisition at this point through Facebook. Um, you know, Again, we hadn't raised any money, so we were very conscious on where we were putting our dollars. But um, we now we do retargeting through Facebook. They're actually in an app called Shoelace, which is um, you know plugs into Shopify nicely, and, and they're they're great. They're they use this sort of like you could think of it as like almost like an email drip campaign, um, where they're sending different messages to those that were on your site in in various ways, and they drip them those messages or those ads. Um, so it's it's very targeted, if you will, and they have. You know, they've done the analysis of after a certain number of days, there's no reason to keep retargeting or this is the sort of ad you should show them next. Um, they're incredibly great. And they actually almost act as like this, um, like quasi agency slash platform where they, their, their customer service is unbelievable. They're willing to help you as almost like an agency would, but yet 
they're at a price point and you can use them as, um, you know, you can spend $5 a day um, working through them instead of these massive, you know, rates that you traditionally get. So we found them to be a, a great partner for us. Right, yeah, because typically with uh, retargeting ads that you might set up yourself, you might just have one image or one one uh, version of the copy that you hit your your past visitors with. But with uh, Shoelace, the way you're describing it is that they hit the user with different messages, maybe different images, maybe different copy as they get more and more exposed to your brand and then decide to taper off over time if it's not working or, you know, bring them into different kind of, like you're saying, drips and different kind of funnels if they are being responsive to your to your ad. Certainly a different way, certainly a new way and a pretty innovative, innovative way that I've seen uh, retargeting set up. So uh, certainly worth checking out. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Shoelace. What other kind of applications do you, do you use to help run the, the business? Yeah, so there's there's really probably two other ones that we spend, you know, one that is important to us. We don't spend a lot of as much time in, which is Privy, um, and like an email pop-up capture tool. Um, and that, you know, allows us to A-B test how we capture emails on our site. We still find email being an incredibly important way to us to for us to communicate with our, our customer base or potential customer base. So we want to, you know, anyone that comes to the site, we want to um, hopefully capture their email if we can. So we, we really spend a lot of energy thinking through that and how we can drive that capture. Um, secondly is we use ShipStation, like I'm sure a lot of people on Shopify do. Um, it's just, it's, it's really great from a, uh, um, a shipping standpoint and has been, you know, incredibly great for us getting awesome rates and, uh, and the rest. So those, those three are pretty important to us. Mm-hmm. And what about the referral program? Do you remember what you used to, to launch that? We actually um, did a custom, uh, we, we had custom code created for it, which uh, we hired a developer off of Upwork to do so, which, which worked fine. Um, but we're actually, we're, we're running another referral program, which is a little bit lighter, but it involves our shoe launch, which is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have it on our site right now. And what we're using is, it's called, it's a platform called Viral Sweep. And what they do is they're actually, it's a platform that's used for giveaways or sweepstakes. So if you partner with a lot of brands, um, the goal is, you know, to drive all these people to a giveaway. Everyone, you know, puts in their emails and they enter to win this prize. We actually sort of reverse engineered this platform a little bit um, and are using it as a way for people to, you know, enter their emails. But also they then have a unique URL link that um, they can share with whoever they want and whoever they share it with, it, it reads through this viral suite that um, their emails attached to whoever they were referred by, um, which is allows us to give credit in whatever form that may be. So um, it's a much cheaper way than having someone build up custom code. And it's also kind of using this platform a little bit different way than what's intended for. Got it. Um, and you mentioned earlier about the A-B test that, that you've run using Privy to to uh, to get more opt-ins for your email list. Can you share some of the, the tests that you've run, that you run that have resulted in big bumps in, in opt-ins? Yeah, sure. So we, you know, there's different ways um, based on timing. So how quickly that email pop-up or that pop-up actually comes up on the site. You know, if it's three, five, 15, 30 seconds. Um, those all change the opt-in rates. Also, what that copy looks like. Um, so that that obviously has an effect. Um, you know how the the pop-up is occurring. If it's a, a drop-down or if it's something that's on the bottom of the page or the top of the page or actually jumping out of the page, those are all things that we were testing. Um, as well as you know, again, going back to that copy. If there's a way to incentivize people to actually enter their emails. Um, that's going to change what those opt-in rates are as well. So uh, really testing through all those different elements are sort of how we've gotten to where we're at now. And, uh, you know, we're still working through that and optimizing that even further. But, um, you know, our opt-in rates are now around 10 to 15%. And I think, uh, you know, an average is around probably 1% to 3%. So we're pretty mm-hmm. happy with, uh, with where we're at with that. Yeah, definitely impressive. And these are tests that you really have to run on your own site to get an understanding of what works and what doesn't work for you. Um, now, were there any tests that you ran that that you that saw a very significant decrease in opt-ins that you maybe recommend people don't try or don't implement for their email signups? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of 
Yeah, I think, you know, we didn't try them, but for us, it was just sort of this innate reaction where if it feels very pushed or, or, or really aggressive, in, if, if you will, um, it sort of turned us off from wanting to opt in. So there's a variety of ways. If you want to incentivize someone to sign up and they get a coupon code or whatever, you know, that's a great way to get people on board, capturing their emails and, and converting them to a first-time customer. But just making sure that the way that you're doing that um, is not in this, like, incredibly aggressive, bold, with explanation points. And it's like, if you don't enter, you're just, you don't know what you're doing. You know, you're being mm. stupid. Those are the sort of things that we, um, you know, through the, the research that we had done, uh, would sort of kind of demotivate people and turn them off from the brand. But um, there's obviously this fine line to making sure that, you know, you still can incentivize them. And that's, you know, a great way to actually optimize that conversion as well. So just being thoughtful about it and not making it seem that um, they have to or there's really, you know, no end in sight for them. Mm, makes sense. Now, you've been live since 2016, which is, you know, last year. Uh, how much has, or how, how has the team grown? How has the company grown since, since uh, the beginning? So there were just a couple of us when we went live, and now we've you know sort of tripled our size, um, split between full-time and part-time people. Uh, we also just raised a sort of initial round of financing, if you will, so that um, sort of helped us, uh, you know, have a gave people a deeper understanding of where we're at on the growth side of things and the confidence that people had in, in what we were doing and building. But you know, we're still still very young and in our infancy and. Um, with this new category coming up for us, we're actually implementing a new um, sort of drop model, if you will, where we're actually going to be releasing one new shoe style every single week going forward, um, which, you know, successful or not, just sort of innately makes us double the size of the team, just given the uh, the amount of, you know, supply chain work that's needed, sourcing work that's needed, fulfillment and everything else. So um, there's a variety of reasons why we're sort of taking this approach, but um, you know, it's we're we're growing quickly, and and now that we're you know expanding on on the marketing and the budget side of it all, it, it sort of helps us fuel that growth as well. Awesome, thanks so much, Scott. So OliverCabell.com, O L I V E R C A B E L L dot com. So looking forward, what what plans do you have? You know, you mentioned that the shoes are coming out. What where do you want to focus the company in the next year or so? Yeah, I think for us, we really want to solidify that category and, and what it means. But we just want to continue getting the word out on, on who we are and what we're doing and the rest. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're being very thoughtful with our growth, but continue to, to expand and, and tell people our story. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. Thanks, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. Success is your worst enemy. Because once you start getting one right, two right, you think you're, you, you got everything. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.